All right, welcome to the Friday Q&A. The first question today comes in from Gabriel C., who asks, as Christians, what is the purpose of our lives? And I want to um, tackle this thoughtfully, this first question. While you guys are loading, I see the chat going berserk over there. You're loading your questions. Um, I'm going to be taking all 20 of them, or at least 19 other than the first one, uh, from the live chat today and answering yours. And then after a couple hours after the stream, we'll put timestamps down below so you guys can navigate to the questions that you find most useful for you. The whole agenda is just to make the content as usable for you as possible. And so that's what we're doing. So um, I'm Pastor Mike Winger here in Southern California. And um, I think there was something else I was going to mention, but it just escapes my mind at the moment. So Gabriel's question is, as Christians, what is the purpose of our lives? I think that actually what I can say is that what I'm going to answer right now for Christians is, I believe, the purpose of our lives for all people, whether they are Christian or not. This is the actual purpose of their life. So like from a, from a, from a, a standpoint where there is no God, um, not that everybody who's not a Christian believes there's no God, I'm not saying that, but, but from the standpoint where there is no God, there is effectively no transcendent purpose for our lives. You can have self-determined purposes. I'm going to purpose to do this or that, but there's no way to measure whether that's your real purpose, like your created purpose or not. You could think of the analogy of a hammer. If I make a hammer, it's designed to hammer nails in, among other things. Um, so its purpose is to hammer in nails, pull them out, do that sort of thing. That's its actual purpose because I have intent when I made it. But let's say that something very much like a hammer just sort of accidentally fell together in the forest. Would it have a purpose, even if it looked identical to a hammer, would it have a purpose the way the hammer does? I know it would have things it's good at, but it wouldn't have purpose in the same sense. It could, and if you made it a smart, if you made it smart, this pseudo hammer and intelligent, it could determine, hey, I'm, I'm good at hammering in nails, I suppose I'll be, I'll make that my purpose because I'm good at it. Or maybe it decides I enjoy um, frolicking among the bananas. And then maybe that just, it decides that's its, its purpose now because it has a self-determined purpose. But you can't actually say that purpose is transcendent. That purpose has ultimate, you know, value and meaning beyond just sort of the determination of the individual. Nor can you actually weigh the goodness or badness of that purpose very easily because it's just, you do what you want. Um, the purposelessness of life without God is is a is a pretty psychologically daunting thing to consider. And there's even philosophers in the past who acknowledge that without God there is no purpose and there is no moral values um, or duties that are binding upon humanity. And then determined that they would just kind of pretend that there was, like some calling this the noble lie. Like we'll just lie to ourselves and say that we have purpose when in fact we really don't. What's so weird about this is that by calling it a noble lie, that's part of the lie is that this is noble because they, they're saying we deny nobility amongst those things. So um, I, I do think that those who try to say that there is true and genuine, like transcendent, ultimate purpose and meaning and values without God, I think that they're incorrect. I think their philosophical arguments fall and fail. They have them, but I think they fail. And many atheists over time have acknowledged that, even philosophers. Um, not that they're all going to agree with me. Obviously, they're not, but many have. So the question that we have then is, with God in the picture, what is our purpose? It's nice that I have some, but what is it? What is my purpose? And I want to uh, tackle this, you know, from the perspective of um, 
Well, what I've what I've heard in the past from people is that you know glorifying God and enjoying Him forever is our purpose, and I would agree with that. But I don't know that that fully answers my questions about purpose. When I say that, I, I think that the statement, the answer, glorify God, enjoy Him forever, may not answer enough of my questions about what is my purpose for me to be clear on it until I've really thought it through. So if you're going to really think it through, that that's a pretty good answer. But I'm also wondering if there's like a biblical verse that says this. Have you guys tried to, you know, because the goal here is like think biblically about everything. So is there a Bible verse that says that glorifying God and enjoying him forever is the purpose of mankind or that just glorifying God is the ultimate purpose of mankind? And while I want to agree with this idea at its core, I want to say that I might express it a little differently the more I think about it and the more time I have to talk about it, which today I have a little bit more time. So as you guys are loading, you know, you've already put a ton of questions that we're polling a bunch of them and we'll get them in front of me in just a moment. Um, but let me walk you through some scripture. Since I don't know a Bible verse that just tells you the purpose of mankind is fill in the blank, like in, in that sort of plain, explicit sense. But the Bible doesn't leave us clueless by any measure on this. Just because you don't have a single verse that answers the question in a plain, explicit sense doesn't mean the Bible doesn't answer the question. So here's some thoughts from Scripture. Um, it says in Scripture that God created all things for himself. There was It was created by him and for him. That's a pretty interesting phrase. It, it means that not just you, but all of creation is ultimately for God. Now, does that mean that that is the final and, and ultimate and total description of our purpose? I, I don't think so. I think that there's more details you want to put in there. What do you mean for God? Like I exist for God? That's a perfectly good, you, why do you exist? For God. Like that's a good answer, but but I need more details to understand how that how this works out in my life. So let me take us to what it means to be for God by looking at the whole Bible real quick. <laughs> this only take like a minute. So Genesis, God creates Adam and Eve. It says in his image. In God's image, he made us. This is unlike all the animals. So we are for God, but we're for God in a different way. We're different. We're set apart from all of creation. You and me were made in God's image. Now, as you carry us on to the New Testament, you'll see that uh, that when we turn to Christ, we sort of uh, we get the fullness of what it means to be in the image of God because we, we're transformed more and more into the image of Christ. Anyway, we'll get there in a second. So Adam and Eve are put into the garden, and they have, in this moment of perfection, They've got like three things that I can see. They have fellowship with God, right? He walks in the cool of the day. They have fellowship with God. They have fellowship with each other with no tension, no awkwardness, no weirdness, no sin. They're naked and unashamed. And they have stewardship over creation. So there's there's three sort of relationships that are there. There's God, right? Each other and creation. And there are different relationships, right? Creation, it's a stewardship relationship. It's I don't worship creation, right? It's a stewardship thing. With each other, it's a fellowship, equality relationship um, with with deep connection and no sin involved. And with God, it's different, right? He is God. He is not just like one of us. So you have those relationships. Then there's the problem of the fall, sin. And this is the problem that the rest of the Bible ripple effect deals with all throughout its pages. So they sin, they're kicked out of the garden. So the stewardship of the planet is damaged, right? It's, it's not over, it's not ended, but it's harmed somehow as the curse affects creation itself, thorns and thistles and the beasts and all this stuff. Um, the, it, the, the relationship between man and woman is also damaged. If you read in Genesis 3 about the curse, the connection between husband and wife and stuff is damaged. And we see this play out with 
Then later, uh, Cain kills Abel, and we see all the flood of, uh, not, no pun intended, the flood, all the flood of ungodliness and wickedness of mankind harming each other. And we see the damaged relationship with God himself. No longer is this walk in the cool of the day with God going to go on. There's damaged relationships in all of these three categories. Then we have Jesus who shows up. He becomes like, sort of like a new Adam, like to represent all of us. And he goes and he lives perfectly, doesn't sin. He dies on the, on the cross for our sins to pay the just penalty for our sins. And then he rises from the dead. And then he, and he brings us into a new experience of, of relationship with each other. We're made one with Christ. Each other, or, or, you know, all of us together, we are one as one body of Christ. That's the church. So our human relationships are changed. And more importantly, our relationship with God is changed. Now we call him Abba Father. And we, you know, Jesus was like a, a rare Jew, in that, uh, uber rare, in that he would go around calling God his Father. Now they didn't do this in a corporate, in, in an individual sense. They may have said it corporately, like God's the Father of Israel, but not in an individual sense, like Jesus did. This was considered weird. And John, they accuse him of claiming to be equal with God because he calls God his Father. And then you get to call God your Father. You're not equal with God, but you're in Christ. So in Christ, we have restored relationships with each other and with God. Do you get the idea that I'm getting at relationship? Relationship is like a key element of the purpose of human life, I think based upon scripture. Relationship. Not just romance, but relationships. Then we have Revelation. The book of Revelation shows at the end the consummation of all things. And it's like the garden, but better. Everything's better. For one thing, there's more people. But we have a recreation, a new, new heavens and new earth. We have God who is right there with us, walk amongst us, not just metaphorically or in some other sense, but actually his presence is so very present that he is, you don't even need light in this place. God himself is the light. So we are intimately and constantly in real and deep connection with God beyond whatever you've experienced even in your Christian life. That's the constant state that we'll be in in the new creation. We also have a new earth where all of the corruption has passed, and now we have a new and beautiful and perfect, basically like a, a global Eden. And we have a relationship with each other, which is without sin, which is in great and perfect fellowship. So do you get the idea again that what we lost in the garden, we received back? God made us for relationship with him, others, and stewardship of creation. And these seems to be the things that we're made for. Now, if you look at what Jesus said um, when he was asked, th th this gives us another clue. I, I, I don't usually hear people bring up this verse, but I think it's really relevant to the idea of the purpose that you and me have as Christians. And then I'll apply this to things like, can you be a veterinarian? <laughs> For those who might be wondering that. Um, which you can, of course, but I just want to apply it. I want to think it through. Um, when Jesus was asked, or asked actually others, what is the greatest commandment? And this whole discussion happened. He affirms that the greatest commandment, the greatest duty of mankind is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. And everything else kind of hangs on that. Now, if you were to ask, what's your purpose? I could, I could respond by saying, well, what is your duties? And if you could summarize all of your duties, all of the things you're supposed to do with your life in like two phrases, then those two phrases must be intimately connected with your purpose. So this is another way of getting at what our purpose is as Christians, and it is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That means he's the chief love. He's the number one love. You don't love others the same way you love God, but you love others the way you love yourself. So God above self even, and others equal to how much you love yourself. 
this is this is beautiful to me. This is the ethic of Christianity. This is the ethic of reality. Love is indeed the purpose for mankind. Our world redefines love in weird ways, um, selfish ways often, um, distorted ways, and ways that are just just they just misunderstand certain elements of what it means. But but God defines it quite well in Scripture, right? You can read First Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 13, just read through that description of love. This is your, your, your purpose. Love God, which means not just obeying God. That's part of it, right? If you love me, obey my commands. But actually being in deep personal relationship with God that is incredibly satisfying and joy-giving and fulfilling. So you, you are being fulfilled in this purpose and loving others as yourself, which is a blessing. I mean, this is like the ideal society, in a sense, when you do these things. That's how Jesus responded. Now, if you see all else of your life in, res in response to this, like say, hey, my purpose is, you could say to glorify God, and that's true, but what? how do I glorify God? I would say by loving him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving my neighbor as myself. That's how I glorify God. That's the how, right? Because you know, a, a flower glorifies God by just being there and just being beautiful. I'm not glorifying God just by that. There's more to it. So um, if you see all else in light of this, this means that your kindness towards others, you know, this is something that you do ultimately in connection with your relationship with God first and others second. So philanthropy, which means like phileo, love, right? And anthropos, man, it's your, you're just loving mankind. The good, good deeds you do towards others is just an act of love. Or when you worship God, this is um, an act of love towards God. It's not just a task, a duty to perform it. it the duty itself is loving God. When you study theology, you're loving God with your mind. Right now, you're loving God in a fashion as you just think about these things and try to direct your life towards the Lord more and more. When you do evangelism, this is, a, this is the height of love towards your fellow man because you're trying to bring them into their very purpose of knowing God, loving God, and loving others. Now, it can't be done apart from Christ, so you present Christ because he is, he is the way. In fact, Jesus describes life itself as knowing God and knowing the one whom God has sent, which is Jesus. That's John 17, 3. He describes life. This is eternal life that, you would, that they would know God, the Father, and him whom he sent, Jesus. Wow. So if, in your job, let's say you have a job as, um, a lot of people think of their jobs as like their purpose in life, um, especially when, we're, when you're younger. The older you get, the less you do this. But when you're younger, you tend to think of this as your purpose. Um, I would say this is secondary to your purpose. Your job is secondary to your purpose. The question I would have for you is, does your job serve your purpose? That's the bigger question. So let's say you're a veterinarian, or let's say that you are um, a graphics design artist. Are you, in the course of your job, are you loving God, first and foremost, and loving others? You see... You could do just most occupations, except for just a genuinely ungodly occupation. You could do most occupations and you can love God in these ways and it would honor him and it would be fulfilling your purpose. It, you don't just, it's not like everybody has to do full-time ministry. In fact, I would argue that that's actually a bad idea. The body's different on purpose. We're not all supposed to do full-time ministry. Um, we should be, we should have a variety of things going on. And in scripture, there are people lauded for various things beyond in being in full-time ministry. So the question with my job or my skills or my abilities or my pursuits, the things I invest my life in is, am I loving God with this? Am I loving others with this? 
Your marriage, see it in light of this, my marriage is a way of me loving God with my marriage and loving my wife as myself. Everything falls under the umbrella of ultimately God. God who gives us purpose, God who's the designer of the hammer, so to speak, has intentions for it and made us for it. And this is where our, our greatest ultimate and long-lasting joy, not temporary pleasures, not even temporary joys, but our, our greatest ultimate and long-lasting joy will also come from this. But your joy is not the ultimate goal. It's a byproduct of seeking this purpose. That, that's how I understand it. And I believe this is the purpose for all mankind, not just for Christians. This is the purpose for Muslims. This is the purpose for atheists. This is the purpose for Buddhists. This is the purpose for pagans, for those involved in Wicca. This is the purpose for all people is to, to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, love their neighbor as themselves, and thereby experience the fulfillment of what God made them for. All right, let's go to question number two. And this one's coming in from Ben V, who says, is Bethel-style kenosis theology from Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, heretical, where Christ is said to have lost his divinity to live instead as a human, or is it a secondary issue like sacraments and eschatology? Okay, um, there's several layers of, I think, not, not for you, Ben, but at least on this topic, there's several layers of confusion that I will try to mention briefly so people can all just be on the same page, at least that I'm on. You can judge for yourself whether you think the page I'm on is the right page to be on, but let me just lay out some of the issues. Um, there's this teaching, kenosis, and some people will, will, will use that title. It's considered a bad or false teaching. They'll use that title and they'll throw it onto things that, as far as I can understand, sometimes it is kenosis and sometimes it's not kenosis. The worst version of kenosis is probably this idea that Jesus like stopped being God while he was walking in human form. That's pretty bad um, as far as false teachings go. To say that at any point Jesus stopped being God, it, it is some things, I mean, you're denying the deity of Christ at that point. Now, you're not denying that he was ever Messiah, but you're ever, ever, he was always Messiah, you know, when he was walking on the earth, but you're not denying that he was ever God. You, you might think, oh, he was, he was God, but when he came, he stopped being God, took on human form. That would probably be like this worst version of kenosis. That's a significant and serious error. It goes very much against scripture. And, and one of the th reasons why it makes it significant and serious is, let me use the, you, you, you're talking about my mom example. Um, <laughs> if someone says to me, Mike, your mom, and then gives a, um, a description of her that is significantly and horribly wrong, I'm going to call that a really big deal. Now, if they're wrong about her in some other way, if they go, well, your mom was at Ralph's, and I'm like, no, she wasn't. This is not a significant error. This is an error about my mom, but it's not the worst kind of thing. But if it's an error that's significant, it's about like her very nature, the very nature of who she is, and it's significantly off, I'm going to be like, whoa, you're talking about my mama, right? I don't ever use the phrase mama. <laughs> I don't know why I'm using it now. And I think that this is the case where you're talking about my Jesus. You're talking about the Lord of all creation. You're talking about God in the flesh, who you say was just not God in the flesh. Like that, that's a significant error. Um, now, here's where it gets complicated. I don't think Bethel teaches that. They've, they've been ridiculed for teaching that, but I'm not convinced that they do. And I could be wrong. Here's where you, you would need to judge for yourselves. I'm only going to say this. Whether you agree with me or not, that's fine. Base it off of quotes 
in context that you've heard from the actual leaders of the group. All right, Bethel, this is Bill Johnson's church up in Redding, California. Bill Johnson, Chris Valentin, Val Val I'm forgiving me for mispronouncing his name. Um, I'm sure I'm doing it wrong. Um, th this, this is those guys. I don't think they teach kenosis. They'll say things like, Jesus did all of his miracles as a man, but that doesn't mean he wasn't God when he was doing those miracles. They're making a different point. And so they're accused of, of a, this kenosis er heresy. And when I looked at their content, I thought, I don't think that they actually hold that view. So I, when I made a video on Bethel, I didn't criticize them for this. Others thought I was dropping the ball. But I'm like, no, I, I chased that rabbit a little bit. And it looked to me from the teachings I saw that they were affirming the deity of Christ through for all time, right? Like the deity of Christ was consistent from conception to death, resurrection, beyond you know, Jesus in his physical form is always God, but rather that he was not using the abilities that he had as God while he was performing miracles. I think that's their actual teaching. And the reason for this is because they want to say, hey, so whatever Jesus did, you could do because you're not God. Well, he wasn't doing it as God. He was God, but he wasn't doing it as God. He was only using, you know, his human capacities when he, when he did those miracles, right? God in right relation, or man in right relationship with God. That's kind of like the example he was giving. I do not agree with this teaching in its entirety. There's elements of truth in it. But I don't think that Bethel actually holds that view of kenosis. I would want to see quotes in, and this is really, really important, in context, because I recognize the difference between saying Jesus didn't use his divine powers in that time versus Jesus had none because he wasn't God at that time. These are very different claims. Let's look at the passage now. Philippians all, all that laid out. Chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Here it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now this phrase, emptied himself, is, can be variously interpreted. Uh, some would suggest oh, well, he wasn't God anymore. That, that would be like that worst form of kenosis doctrine. But there's different other people who will say they hold it and there's complexity there and stuff. But um, the, this most dangerous thing would be to say that because he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. But how did he empty himself? Well, it was his position as a servant. I will come and I will be in the likeness of, of man. Right? Then being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, not Godhood, right? He always had that, but bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus here is not laying aside his deity in this Philippians passage. He's laying aside this, um, he's setting aside the status of ex exaltation, right? That he has with God. Like Jesus says, you know, glorify me in John 17. He tells the father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world was, right? He set aside glory, which is not necessarily emptying him of his nature of being God, but he comes and he shows up in human form, lowly, holding back the demonstration and the outward presentation of that glory and the outward um, 
expressions of like God's judgment and things like that that usually happen when God shows up in glory. And he comes and he humbles himself as a servant. He dies on the cross, he rises again, and then he's exalted. His nature didn't didn't change from God to not God back to God. It was his name, which has to do with that glory, he set aside, became a servant, and then was exalted again. I, I hope that makes sense. Um, the other things you could look at, since emptied himself is a, is a very like vague sounding phrase, what I'm suggesting is we have context before and after it that suggests that the emptying is about reputation and appearance and not about his nature, so he doesn't stop being God. Then we have other New Testament scriptures which affirm the deity of Jesus while he was walking the earth, right? The I am statements in the Gospel of John, stuff like that. Jesus claims to be God, so at no point did he cease to be God. Then we have the scary philosophical, theological implications of suggesting that God could stop being God. Um, what does that mean? God is just, he is, he exists in and of himself, God not being God anymore at any in any capacity, a member of the Trinity not being God anymore, is it like causes theological implosions. <laughs> so let's go to question number three, and we have all twenty questions for today, guys. I'll just work through them now one at a time. Oh, and heads up, next Friday I'm not having a stream, a Q and A. I will do one the following Friday, just letting some people know because every Friday I don't do one. People are like. Mike, are you okay? I know you get worried. Don't get worried if I'm not there for Friday. It's probably nothing. Um, all right, number three, Billa says, when strong Christians suddenly start to justify sinful treatment of others, rage, control, insults, blaming, through scripture twisting, could this be due to a shipwrecked faith or mental illness? Um, Billa, this is, I have to be honest with you and say this question's pretty vague. I'll read it again and just for you and everybody listening, think about how much detail we have here. Uh, when strong Christians suddenly start to justify sinful treatment of others. So there's a sudden change and they're justifying their own or other people's sinful treatment of others. Your examples are rage, control, insults, and blaming. And you say it's using scripture. So through scripture twisting, could this be due to a shipwrecked faith or mental illness? M my answer would be, yes, it could be. But obviously there's, you're talking about situations that would probably all be different. Um, it could be through uh, scripture twisting, uh, the scripture twisting, sorry, could be through some sort of shipwrecked faith, it could be through mental illness, it could be through just some compromise in their lives that, they're become, that they've become blind to. It could be that they've started uh, listening to and associating with others who have the same sort of prideful blind spots in scripture twisting, and so they're adapting this behavior. Uh, Proverbs says that bad company corrupts good morals good character. And so there, it could be part of the company that they're keeping. So I'm, I'm just saying it could be any of those things. The solutions are going to be similar in most cases. Um, I think with mental illness, uh, we, we now have, there's medical avenues we have now with mental illness that we didn't previously have. Those things that should be considered and pursued carefully, thoughtfully, very carefully and thoughtfully, uh, in my opinion. Um, but I can't tell people what they should or shouldn't pursue in that regard specifically because... I don't understand those things that well um, when it comes to the medical side of things. But whether or not you're pursuing medical help for mental illness, there's still spiritual things that should be dealt with. It's not like I, I take these series of pills and then that's like the whole story. Like that resolves all the issues. There's probably other stuff if there was sinful behavior involved and connected to it. 
that should be addressed along these spiritual lines that, um, yeah. So I'm sorry, it's just a bit, it's, it's possible. It's just a bit too vague for me to get into a more specific answer for you, at least from my understanding and whatever wisdom I've got. Nick Ewing says, hi, Mike. Hi, Nick. Uh, I grew up praying before every meal, even in restaurants. I want to know how often I should do this since I don't want to be like the Pharisees praying publicly to be seen by others. Um, yeah, so here's an interesting thought. Jesus says, don't be like the Pharisees who do their prayers to be seen by others. And in fact, he says this about several things they do. He said they make their phylacteries really broad. This was like a little box with scripture on it, which isn't inherently bad. They made it broad. They enlarged it because they wanted others to see them as more righteous. They, they made the borders of their garment even bigger, which had religious significance, but they made it even bigger so people could see how religious they were, you know. It's like getting a big Bible for the purpose of people seeing you carry the big Bible around or like getting it all roughed up just so they could be like, wow, it's very spiritual. Look at your roughed up Bible. Um, but what if you just happen to have a roughed up Bible, but it's not for that purpose? What if like the, the only phylactery you could find at the store was kind of big, but you didn't mean it for to be for that purpose. It was just the only one available to you. Are you making the Pharisee mistake? Or what if you think praying for meals is a way of honoring God and you're not doing it for people to watch you, but you are doing it when people can see you? I think you're not a Pharisee in that case. I think it's the motive that Jesus was really targeting, not just the behavior. So it's the reason for the behavior. You know, Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. He's like, you know, outwardly you appear, you appear good to men. Like a, like a tomb, like a j tomb full of dead men's bones that's painted white. It looks pretty, looks nice on the outside. Lots of, you know, cemeteries do this when, with the ones that have tombs. They look very nice outwardly, but inwardly there's just that stark reality that they're full of dead men's bones. Um, that was the Pharisees. They looked good on the outside, but the inside was dead. So when you pray in public, I think it's okay in so long as you were not doing it for the people listening. And this is a great temptation. Even with me, like I've got viewers watching online and I'm going to pray at the end of this stream today. That's hugely praying in public, way more than you ever do when you pray over a meal at a restaurant. Is my motive to look good to you guys? I mean, you don't know this, but I have to do the hard work to make sure that's not the case. I could try to pray in certain ways that would make you feel more impressed, but I think it would make God more depressed, <laughs> at least in regards to my genuine spirituality. So praying in public, I mean, he, he does, Paul's like, I desire all men everywhere to lift up their hands in prayer. Praying in public is a good thing in so long as it's not praying for the public. Catch the difference? Most like presidential inaugurational prayers are like this. Most, not all, but most seem like this. As I listen, I'm like, yeah, this was like a prayer that was crafted for the viewers instead of for the Lord. That's the kind of prayer that you want to avoid. So there's nothing in scripture that says we're supposed to pray over every meal. Um, there's nothing in scripture that says you're not supposed to. I knew a student who kind of struggled with this. And I, I think that there was a season where at least he felt like he, sh he didn't want to pray over meals because he felt like it seems maybe he didn't say it in these words. But my impression, I could be wrong, was that he felt like it was kind of silly. Like, who are doing this thing all the time? I don't even know why I'm doing it. Um, I know why I do it. I pray over pretty much every meal. Um, it's, it's because it was Jesus's example. Um, Jesus did bless the food or pray over the food. I mean, we use the word bless in strange ways, sometimes in modern times. So he did pray 
over the food, thanking for being giving thanks for the food. That was a regular thing that was done, and this seems like a very good habit to have since the New Testament tells us to be thankful very frequently and very not only frequently does it tell us to be thankful, but it tells us to be frequently thankful, to be continually thankful people. And this is good for when you pray, at least to be thanking the Lord for providing for you. This acknowledges God's provision for you. I think it's a healthy thing. I wouldn't judge a Christian for not doing it at all. But I think it's a healthy thing. I think it follows Jesus' example, who seems to do that pretty much all the time. And probably it was normal in his culture as well, I'd imagine. But he definitely set that example. So I think it seems like a healthy thing to do. The Pharisees are being ultimately ridiculed, not just for doing things in public, but doing things for the public. That's the thing to avoid. Yeah. Let's go to question number five. This is from Dave and Becky, who say, hi, Pastor Mike. In view of the magicians in Exodus, oh, and hi, Dave and Becky. Um, in view of the magicians in Exodus potentially getting their power from Satan, can Satan slash demons heal are these potentially healings that don't last? It's a really good question. I've pondered this myself. Um, so the magicians in Exodus that they're referring to, for anybody who just doesn't recall off the top of your head, um, we're talking about how, how uh, Moses went to Pharaoh and he did these various things to demonstrate the power of God. This was not, not only with the plagues that came upon the Egyptians, but even on the small scale, like he stood before the, the Egyptians, um, Pharaoh's Egyptians, uh, Pharaoh's magicians, sorry, <laughs> forgive me. Um, and he was using like making these commands, God commands this, God commands this. And Pharaoh's like, who's your God that I should listen to him. He Pharaoh has his own gods. He thinks protect him. And the magicians like throw down their, their, um, uh, I think it was Moses first. He throws, throws down his staff and the staff turns into a serpent. And then the the Pharaoh's Egypt Pharaoh's magicians throw down their staves. Their staves become snakes. Also, now what's interesting about this is Moses's snake ate the other two. So this is kind of a little small scale version of exactly the whole big thing that went on between God and the Egyptians. There, it was yeah. There's spiritual forces that are going on there, right? We're not sure in every case how the magicians did their thing. We know with Moses, it was just a pure miracle and it was from God. In some of their cases, it just says they did it by their tricks or by their methods. And we don't know for sure, like when they tried to turn uh, water into blood, did they use trickery or did they actually transmute it somehow? Um, so yeah, they're, they're an interesting example. At least some of the stuff they did seems like it was probably done through spiritual powers that would probably not have been theirs, but have been demonic forces trying to feed a pagan religious system. And so, you know, this is where the there's power in the darkness, so to speak. The de demons are real, the demonic realm is real, and there's real impact they can have in this world. You know, when, when Satan has permission to attack Job, he actually can cause things to happen. He doesn't heal him, he hurts him, he brings him sickness. And is it possible that 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 Therefore, is it possible for Satan to bring healing? It seems possible to me. Um, but one of the scriptures that comes, and I don't know if I have all the right answers on this, but it, as we're just trying to think biblically about things here, one of the verses that comes to my mind is in Revelation where it talks about this, like the wound that the Antichrist gets and how it, how it seems healed. 
right? That, that he sort of like overcomes in a way that's sort of mocking overcoming, kind of like the way Jesus did overcoming death. This is like a fatal type wound. Um, that seems to imply something there. So the consistent thing I see in scripture, when you have the encountering the powers of darkness and the power of God, is that the powers of darkness are A, lesser, they're lesser, this is this is consistent, whether it's the demons trying, you know, trying to ruin someone's life or something like that, um, Jesus coming and delivering them, and then, and then the demon is cast out and the person is set free. The power of darkness is always lesser, and the power of darkness is always bringing harm in the long run, causing harm, even if it brings some measure of what seems like good at the time, there's some kind of harm in the long run. So all, all that being said, let me come back to your question now. Um, can Satan heal? It seems at least possible. I don't know of a scripture that would dictate that he can cause illness, but he couldn't heal in any way. It would seem like he wouldn't have the capacity for healing that God does. He doesn't obviously doesn't have the capacity for healing that God does. And when the kingdom of Christ encounters the kingdom of, of Satan, it's the gates of Hades that will not stand. And so I would expect the Christian in that scenario, generally speaking, if you know, as long as they're not compromised in their walk and stuff like that, to prevail and demonstrate the power of God more so than something else, someone else who's using the power of Satan. So I think that that was something I'd expect. Um, also, scripture talks about lying wonders being done by the enemy. So th there's another phrase there, lying wonders. Well, the idea of wonders is exactly that. It's kind of something, maybe not healing, but something that makes people go like, wow, that just seemed like it was powerful beyond human means. But yet it was misleading and taking people away from God. So yeah, I'm sure there's more questions you guys have as I bring this up, but at least there's some thoughts to mull over slowly and patiently. All right, we'll go to Bobby Rice, who says, I'm a new believer and my wife is a Catholic, married five years. We have two very young baby daughters. How do I win my wife to Christ if she grew up rigidly Catholic? I can't break her, uh, break past her typology beliefs. Oh, typology. Oh, I mean, well, Bobby, I'm going to give you two different answers on this question, and they're just counsel of one guy to another guy. Okay, I'm not like the old, like I'm not the Bible. <laughs> so here's just my my counsel to you from what little you've shared. Um, one is that preserving your marriage and the love that your wife feels from you is like absolutely of primary importance here. That's huge. That you 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 don't want to you don't want to compromise in any way in your faith in Christ and your trust in Christ and your confidence in what, what the scripture says. But I just want to say that you need to absolutely prioritize what Jesus says to you about love your wife self-sacrificially, love her as Christ loved the church, love her that much. Um, I guess I'll give you a few pieces of advice. Another one would be to separate Roman Catholic teachings that are, maybe they're incorrect, but they're not that, that huge of a deal from things that are more of a big deal. And if you start to recognize those, then you won't have as many red flags going off all the time. And you can just say, hey, you know, like this isn't really touching the core doctrinal issues, that kind of thing. And there's, and there's also so much you guys agree on. And that's something you guys can, you guys can talk about and you can be happy about. To connect on that, which you do actually agree on as a married couple, to recognize that. Um, I think that th that would be maybe healthy. But you say you can't break her past her typology beliefs. Um, the best advice I would have here is to thoroughly, thoroughly, 
thoroughly study the typology stuff. Uh, Roman Catholicism, uh, especially Roman Catholic apologists nowadays, they, they really lean heavily on typology, I've noticed, just from the stuff I've seen. So typology is stuff like saying, um, Mary is, type in typology, Mary's the Ark of the Covenant because she carries, she's carrying the, you know, the rod that was, that was, uh, the, the Aaron's rod that budded or, you know, that kind of thing, Jesus, you know, he, and so this is like typology or, or Mary's like the Queen Mother and, and then because she's like these things in typology, she's like a type of that or an example of that, then we can draw these theological conclusions about her. Um, or typology about the Pope. And then uh, here's the thing, though. I have a series that you might be interested in, Bobby. It's called um, How to Find Jesus in the Old Testament. And in it, I do a ton of typology stuff amongst that stuff in fact there's one video in particular i will find i'm going to find for you um just give me two seconds to type it in here more than two seconds um okay this is specifically about Mariology, which obviously i i think mary was wonderful uh catholics should know that as a protestant i'm not Suggesting there's something wrong with Mary. Mary's wonderful. You know, I'm no nothing nothing against Mary. It's it's that some of the teachings that arose about her, uh, hundreds in some case, many hundreds of years later, aren't representing true things or biblical things, but man's traditions. At any rate, I'm going to put this right now. I just put a link in the in the um, in the live chat for you to check out. This is specifically a study I did about how. Um, Catholic apologists abuse typology, abuse typology in order to support doctrines about Mary. So this is where I actually get into a very popular Catholic apologist and his specific claims about Mary and several of the typological examples. So Bobby, I hope that's useful for you. And I think it's right on target if it's the kind of thing you're talking about. I would not necessarily attack your wife with all the data at one time. I would be very thoughtful and prayerful about how to share it with her and when to share and those types of things. I would focus mostly on Jesus and how salvation functions. I would focus mostly on what it means to stand in grace and maybe, you know, if she's open to it, start doing like a study of the book of Romans together. I think the book of Romans is a fantastic place for the two of you guys to, to, to look at together and patiently let her be you know, in disagreement with you on different things and just be patient. And, and I think that would be wonderful if you guys could do that. But this will equip you on the typology side of things, that specific video. So I'll link my How to Find Jesus in the Old Testament series and I'll link the typology video. And I actually had a Catholic apologist respond to me and try to point out all my inconsistencies <laughs> because he thinks I'm being unfair. The, the weird thing about this was is he actually just passed over and ignored all of the policies, the rules that I think are appropriate for typology. That's what I would like you to focus on is what are the rules for keeping us to biblically accurate typology versus just making up whatever we want? And um, that Catholic Paul just completely ignored all of the rules. So how can you say I'm inconsistent? Anyway, it's, I, sh I shouldn't be defending myself here except to say um, the point will be missed if those policies or rules are not seen. So check them out. All right, we'll go to question number seven. And this is from Lee Duncan, who says, Hey, Mike, how should I view the pain I feel for victims of the Holocaust, Nanking, Massacre, etc., when these groups were mostly 
unelect vessels of wrath who will receive no comfort. Um, Lee, I do not, it sounds like you're coming from a um, Calvinist perspective, and so I may not be, a, be the best person to answer this for you because the, the terminology you're using is very much how I would expect a Calvinist to put it. Um, so you might want to look at it for a Calvinist to answer this question for you to, to be better fit with your understanding of, of theology on issues that I would say are not, there are issues that I'm willing to disagree with Christians on or not fight about, right? I don't agree with them, but I, I wouldn't fight over it. So how should you view the pain you feel for victims of the Holocaust? Uh, Nan King Massacre, basically someone who's gone through some horrible thing and yet they were not saved. Um, and you say that there's no comfort for them. I don't know the particulars, and, and this is something I think you should affirm too. We don't know the particulars of how they will stand in judgment. I'm not saying that they'll be saved apart from Christ. For anybody who has rejected Jesus Christ, they'll stand for that rejection. They'll deal with it. But there were also injustices done to those people, and those injustices are things God will deal with on Judgment Day as well. So, to say there's zero comfort um i don't i don't know if that's the truth there's maybe a decision to reject ultimately god and reject christ and reject eternity with god from that person between them and the lord and that'll be dealt with but what about between them and the uh, the offenders the people who abused them and hurt them and wounded them and did all these things it's not like that abuse means they now deserve heaven i mean we might feel that way like if i suffered a lot on earth and i deserve heaven but that doesn't factor in your relationship with god at all and I'm going to leave that to God to be the judge there. And I'm going to trust him with that. And that's a good encouragement for all of us, I think, is trusting that the just judge who knows all and is actually holy is going to make all the right choices, even if I don't understand them. Which is understandable that you don't understand how God judges people that to you are literally just a tragedy story. You don't know them. You don't really understand them. They're just like... Uh, the, the problem with hypothetical people, even though they were real, but in your head, they're totally two-dimensional people just suffered, died. That's the whole story for them. The Lord knows their whole story. He knows all the opportunities they had to hear the gospel, whether they received or not. Maybe some of them you think are not saved were. Uh, but when it comes to their relationship with these other people who persecuted them, who were cruel to them, who did wrong to them, God is going to deal with them very specific. And I don't know that they would receive zero comfort for that. I don't know why, why, why I would assume that. They may think, somebody may think, honest, I'm just shooting straight with you guys. They may think, Yes, I see that I sinned against God. I see that I rejected God. But I also see that the man who was far worse than me, who was cruel to me, who killed me and my family, he's suffering much more now. And they will see the justice of God in that. And there may, in fact, be some degree of comfort in that. They will see that God is just in the end. But they will stand before him on the merits of their own issues, not based upon what other people did. So your, your question, though, you said... How should I view the pain I feel for victims of the Holocaust? I think it's entirely appropriate to feel pain for unsaved people who are suffering unjustly. I think God feels that pain. It's part of why his judgment comes down upon the earth. And they may yet deal with his judgment themselves because they reject Christ, but they're not judged as um, unworthy of protection from injustices that they experience because of that. Right? God's going to deal with all of the people individually, which means punishing the wicked who, who uh, persecuted 
other people who were also wicked on other measures, but didn't earn that from those people. Does that make sense? I hope my words make sense. Lee, you're asking a deeply emotional question, and my answer was more clarity and trying to analyze and put in, put things in categories. So forgive me for not addressing that deeply emotional side of things. I acknowledge I've not fully addressed it. Don't pretend my answer is. The full answer, um, the pain I feel for those people, in, in all honesty, I find overwhelming, and I don't know how to answer it. When I try to think of all the suffering that goes on in the world, it is far too much for my mind and my heart. I just honestly don't know how to handle it. Um, all the all the drama, all the trauma. I, I don't. I don't. I, I don't even watch the news that much, right? And it was and it's made my life better that I don't, because I cannot constantly try to hold in my heart or my head all of the hardships that go on around the world. But I hold in my heart the hope that God will eventually clear it all up, bring justice and goodness and comfort to those who receive Him at least and some degree of comfort, it seems, even to those who reject him, at least in they, that they see the justice of God brought upon the wicked. The problem is that they also have their sins to deal with. So, yeah. Let's go to number eight. Um, She's Moonlight has a question, says, I've heard some people say that psychology belongs to Satan and that Christians should stray from studying it. What is your opinion, and is there any biblical basis for not studying it? So this is kind of a complicated issue because... Um, in a broad sense, psychology, there's a sense in which it's like um, just learning about what are common behaviors, common common um, ways of thinking, and common types of treatments that will help people, or at least give them perceived help to do better, at least meet their own goals in those areas. Is that inherently evil? Like, no, that doesn't seem that bad. Like, that's maybe that's kind of healthy. I mean, in a sense, pastors do this in, in a, please listen to me carefully, in a sense, I'm not saying pastors are psychologists because they're not, but in a sense they do this because what will happen is somebody comes to them with, a, with an issue and they give them advice or counsel, right? And they watch how it plays out. But that same pastor, 30 years later, he's dealt with that kind of person like dozens of times. And he's changed the way he gives counsel now. He's learned from experience that for that scenario, it might be better to advise them this way. Even though what he said was true, it may not have been the most helpful for that person. So there's an element of this like kind of experimentally learning as you go, as you give counsel and advice. But it, like I said, it's complicated. That That's not really what people are complaining about when they talk about psychology. What they're talking about is like the thought makers within psychology. So it's not just the fact of psychology, I think. It's the way it's being done. And so you have like thought makers in psychology. So you have like Freud who had particular beliefs about how psychology took place. And it's been a year since I've looked into this. But there was like Freud. Then there was like the Rogerian style of psychology. These are different sort of paradigms for how human psychology works. And when you start doing that, you're not just looking at um, how do I help somebody reach their goals and deal with sort of the different stresses they have and different issues they got going on. But you're also looking at how I, how will I view them? Like I'm going to take a worldview now of what a human is and what makes them tick. And I'm going to place that over the person. And it might be an unbiblical worldview. I'll give you one quick example that, that comes to mind. It's been too long since I've studied these things. But um, one example would be uh, the nature versus nurture debate. 
And so like, like Freud was very much into the nature thing or the nurture thing, excuse me. So Sigmund Freud, who, who was we a weirdo. Okay. But, but a lot of the weirdos are the people who end up spending their whole life doing all these experiments and writing it all down. And then everybody talks about them forever. Um, so Sigmund Freud was, was on a number of different levels. He was a very strange, weird person, you know, and he thought like, you know, every, every man wants to like sleep with his mother and he wants to kill his father and <laughs> weird, weird stuff. Um, he also would teach that a lot of your current behaviors as an adult would come from stuff that happened when you were a baby. Now, I'm not saying none of that's the case, but he seemed to lean on that very heavily. He was very much, as far as I can recall, on the nurture side of the debate. Then there's others who are on the nature side of the debate. Oh, you're, 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 you're predisposed, you're inclined towards this sort of thing. Is it your life experiences that I should focus on or is it sort of like your genetics and your, and your, and your DNA and you know, your nature? Um, but there's another side of the debate, which is the spiritual. And I think nature matters and nurture does matter. They both matter, but there's a spiritual side of things. And this is where, when I enter into uh, the, the room of a psychologist, they're supposed to set aside like st strong moral commitments to my understanding. And they're supposed to utilize the tools that they've been given to assess and advise as the, very little advice is given actually really to help people work through things. This is a, you're an experiment in a sense when you step into the psychologist's office, but they're gonna target things. Like some will focus all on your childhood and all on past traumas because they're gonna think that all these past traumas have to be worked through because it's all very nurture oriented. All this stuff is a deep experiment in your psyche and it can go good and it can go bad, but because for many psychologists they're being informed by worldview things like it's just nature nurture and there's no sort of god or his rules or genuine spiritual battles that a person goes through or truth about christ like none of that's involved it can be weird so i think this is the this is the where at least i would say there's some legitimate criticisms against psychology um so all that being said to make it more complicated every psychologist is different just because they went in school and they went through these things in school doesn't mean that in the actual psychologist's office. Like I know one guy who has a psychologist who the psychologist constantly gives him advice. You need to do this and you need to do that and you need to do this with his, with his life. Tells him what he just should do. And I'm like, that's not very psychologisty of him. <laughs> you know, this doesn't seem very typical. It doesn't seem like they're training to do that. But people do what they want to do. Your psychologist could be a godly, grounded Christian who's learned a lot from the psychological experiments others have done, but has incorporated a Christian worldview. Or they could be ungodly pointing you in weird directions. They could be turning you into a narcissist because everything's so about you and you're so obsessed with yourself. Or they could be helping you work through some really difficult things that a lot of other people don't have the equipment to help you process. I don't know. So here's me. I throw my hands up in the air and I say, I don't have a judgment on psychology like a giant blanket I can drop on it. I just know you're messing with people on a deep level, kind of like with surgery. Mike, do you think surgery is good or bad? I think surgery is potentially really good and potentially very dangerous. It depends on how good your surgeon is. That's the same thing with psychology, except with psychology, it's a lot harder to measure the effects because you might feel better. Like I know one girl who went to a psychologist totally became a narcissist. Does that mean every psychologist will? We'll do that to people? No, no, I don't I don't think it means that. I just think that's what happened with that person. 
because their way of coping with all the trauma and whatever else they were dealing with was to just become more and more self-obsessed. Um, and that's unfortunate. It helped in some ways, but in other ways it hurt. So like, yeah, how good is the psychologist? Well, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. So forgive me, I've somewhat rambled. I don't think you can give a one giant blanket answer to this question, except to recognize that, like, say, um, with certain medical procedures, it's it's a question of, well, is it being done well? Do you have is it a good procedure? Is it really needed for me? And is the is the surgeon doing it actually good at his job? And with psychology, those are those questions are a lot harder to answer than they are with just normal medicine. So with psychology, yeah, you may find great help. And there's some Christian psychologists probably doing great work. So I don't want to cast them all out. Yeah. Anyway, there's my thoughts on that. Something for you guys to think about, accept, reject, tweak. <laughs> um, oh, let me back up real quick and just say this. You say, is there any biblical basis for studying psychology? Um, I will say this, is the Bible does seem to reveal there's these deep emotional and, and idea issues that humans have, right? This is in in scripture continually, whether it's like in the book of Psalms, like the depth of a person's soul crying out to God, I'm in great despair and I'm going through hard times. God is seen as a major solution to these sorts of problems. And that's important. And if your psychology doesn't include God at all, then you're, you're miss, it's missing something important. Um, you know, when you, when you look at things like, um, Rejoice always, and the peace of you know the peace of God will, will guard your hearts and minds. Be thankful, be anxious for nothing, right? But in everything, give thanks, and make your request be made known to God. And the peace of God will guard your heart. Like there, there's there's things in Scripture like that. Yeah, how do I handle my anxiety? Okay, I'm going to stop and I'm going to try and be deliberately thankful about things. This seems to me kind of like psychological stuff that's happening in Scripture. Doesn't mean there's no other answers, but these are at least some available answers to Christians. Yeah, we'll go on. Um, Italian lad six nine says, "Hi, Pastor Mike. What does fathers do not exasperate your children in Colossians three twenty one mean? Is this meant to be a general guidance to raising children or disciplining them?" Let's look at the passage itself. Here we go. Colossians three twenty one says, "Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged." New King James, I'm going to read a few different translations so you guys can see. Here says, again, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. NIV says, do not embitter your children. Interesting. King James says, fathereth thou shalteth not. No, wait, no, that's not right. It just says, fathers, provoke not your children to anger lest they be discouraged. And of course, to anger is in italics because that's the translator's way of saying, hey, we added this phrase for clarity. It doesn't say to anger in the Greek, but we think it's implied. Um, so you can understand what they're being provoked to. And so why does it say it? Uh, what does it mean? And is it a general guidance to raising children or disciplining them? Um, I think the answer to the second question is yes. It is general guidance. Consider this, that, and this is my own view, is that when in Scripture we have one, two, three statements about a category of people and how they are to conduct themselves... I think those statements must be really important. They, they probably are very broadly applicable because why, like in this case, one statement, fathers, here's one thing I want to tell you about raising your kids. Don't provoke them, right? Do not embitter them. 
lest they become discouraged. Isn't that interesting? That lest they become discouraged is in every, at least those four translations that I quickly surveyed. It's the same in all four of them. Um, there's a balance between raising kids with, with proper discipline versus beating them down. And I don't mean physically beating them down. That is, there's no balance with physically beating people down. I mean, like, their, their courage, their thought of, like, I can do this. I can move forward in life. I can, I can accomplish things. I'm not being so provoked. Um, fathers tend to be the disciplinarians in families, tend to be the ones who are sort of like that, that final, the final head in the family, at least according to scripture. And there's a danger in that. I think this is the case for people who are in leadership in general, is there's a danger that they'll misuse their leadership to cause harm to others, hurt them. Jesus warned his disciples against this because he told them, you know, like, don't be like the Gentiles. They like lord it over you. No, no, you want to be great? Be a servant. There, which doesn't mean you lose your authority. It means you use your authority to serve and help others. And so we're to train our kids up in the ways of the Lord. And the danger is that the father himself not just gets irritated, but that he creates bitterness in his children because of the way he's dealing with them. Now, that bitterness could be because um, of neglect. Father who never disciplines doesn't seem to care, right? There, there's some fathers who are just, they've so checked out that their children look back. And I think this could apply to mothers too, but it specifically says fathers maybe for reason because the fathers maybe more often tend to fail in these areas. That'd be my guess. Um, so the father could just check out. And this, this you know, I, I dealt with, some of this when I was growing up, you know, my dad just wasn't around and, um, this created issues for me. <laughs> it really did. And I can understand how this provokes them or embitters your children, makes them discouraged. Yeah. But then there could be the overbearing dad who's just so he's holding them down under such restraints that they're not really growing and developing into an, into a responsible adult. They're just being controlled, 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 controlled. And that's not really going to work either. So I think that uh, I'm trying to give up a couple examples, but the blanket statement here is, look, don't embitter. That, that's, a good, that's a good way to put it too, is don't embitter. Don't do things to your kids that just provokes them. Now, your kids might just decide to rebel, and maybe that's their fault. But you can also look at yourself and make sure that you don't do things where you go, man, I sure fed into that, didn't I? Like, that was really something I did wrong. And this, it's a scary thing, man. Fatherhood is a scary thing. But that's why scripture gives us counsel on how to do it. Don't check out, but watch your kids and make sure you're not, you're not going overboard, lest they become discouraged. So I think that that's, that's a good general rule for, for fathers from scripture. Number 10, Noah Keener says, how do I know what things are a salvation issue that I have to be right about and what things are more open to interpretation that if I'm wrong, my salvation will not be affected? Well, I think that you, I would answer this question, Noah, by asking, um, did I get saved by believing this? <laughs> does, does me believing this, is, me, is, is my believing this thing attached to how I become saved? And if the answer is no, then perhaps it becomes a secondary issue. Now I say secondary doesn't mean not important. Secondary issues can be hugely important, but you're asking, is it a salvation issue? Obviously, 
it might be very important, but it doesn't mean I'm not saved. Um, so I, I, I look at, you know, belief in Jesus key to our salvation. So I, obviously I need to understand that there's a God. You can't believe in Jesus without knowing that God sent him. I need to know that Jesus is not just a normal person, right? Jesus. And I don't know if you have to consciously be aware of the deity of Christ, but you cannot deny the deity of Christ. Like you may get saved hearing about Jesus, never having contemplated his deity. But if you deny the deity of Christ, you're denying his very person. So now you're denying Jesus, right? It's one thing to be ignorant of a truth of Jesus and something else to deny something that's a core part of his character and his nature. So yeah, the deity of Jesus is in there. His death and his resurrection, his death for your sins and his resurrection from the dead are definitely in there. And the idea of turning from sin, like a life of doing whatever I want to yielding to him as Lord, that's in there, right? Not, not the behaviors exactly, but the idea of that, the, uh, yeah, Lord, I, I yield, my heart is yours. So what about method of baptism? You know, sprinkle or dunk, but I didn't get saved that way. I don't get saved through my baptism. So I don't see that as a primary issue. Or what about speaking in tongues? Like, should I, do I, do I speak in tongues or not? Or what about, um, whether I think the spiritual gifts are ongoing in the church or they've mostly ceased? What about if I want to know whether there should be one senior pastor leading a church or a group of elders that all share authority equally or like what, what church government, or maybe it should be congregationally led church, all, all voting. Like this is secondary issues. Now there's probably right and wrong answers on these things. Most for the most part, they seem clear, at least to me in scripture, most of them, not all of them, but I see them as secondary. What about whether a woman can be a pastor or not? Totally secondary tertiary, <laughs> right? This is, this is, it matters because it affects people's lives a lot. And it's a big debate going on in the church today, but I certainly wouldn't question anyone's salvation disagreeing with me on this issue. So yeah, I, I think that we just say, Hey, I didn't get saved based on that thing. So that's maybe a secondary and maybe a second question to ask is, um, is this an essential element of who Jesus is or what he did to save me? Maybe that's a better way to put it. Is this an essential element of who Jesus is or what he does to save me? And if the answer is no, then it's probably a secondary issue. And if the answer is yes, then I would look at it as a primary one. MC says, why is Jesus, why is Jesus's claims and resurrection the one true root of our faith? Asking to help explain it to unbelievers who believe all religions lead to God. Um, so it's a strange question to ask in a sense um, because I, I'm not thinking of you asking and I'm thinking of somebody who's, who believes, I believe all religions are going to God and then they turn to you and say, why should Jesus be the only way? And I think a better question is, to reverse this a bit and ask them, why would all religions lead to God? Do you think all roads lead to New York, New York? Like I get on any road and everyone's going to arrive at the same destination. Do you believe that? Are there, are there any other areas in life where you think you can believe anything you want and you will achieve the same results? It seems like the person making the claim that all religions lead to God is making a pretty bold claim. I mean, a lot of religions reject God. So if you have a religion that rejects God outright, and then one that believes in God, 
Isn't it weird to think they both lead to God? So what you're saying is the religion's wrong, but somehow it's just going to work. How does that work exactly? So Islam is based upon a rejection of Jesus. They say there's there's one God and he has no son. He doesn't be he doesn't hasn't begotten or begot anybody. So, and so they reject the deity of Christ. They reject that Jesus is the Son of God. They utterly reject that. This is like a central claim in Islam. Christianity says that the heart of knowing God is knowing Jesus. And you're saying they both lead to God? That seems incoherent, right? Like imagine if I went to the doctor and I have, I have like lung cancer. They've just discovered like I've got lung cancer. And I say, doctor, is there a medication? Is there a procedure? Is there something? And he goes, well, there is one way I've got, one way I've got for us to heal this thing. We're going to go and we're going to have to remove a third of your lung or something like that. And then you go through extensive recovery, but I think you're going to be okay. It looks like we can get it all. And another doctor comes up and he goes, Mike, all medical paths lead to healing. Don't you know all medical paths lead to healing? And I go, hmm. Do I look to the one doctor who has a solution and say, prove to me that all other paths are false? I just need him to prove to me that one path works. This guy over here has made a big claim. He has to prove that every path works. So prove to me that every path works. Like, if I just eat a mountain of bananas, I'll be fine. Oh, well, if all paths work, I'm just going to eat a mountain of bananas because that's a lot easier than surgery. This is a big claim that the person's making. All religions. So they're affirming that, that Christianity works and everything else works. So we both agree Christianity works. I'm just going to ask you to prove me why everything else works. Maybe that would be a direction to go with it. Um, usually when people make statements like this, you, not always, but more often than not, they're very unaware of other religions. And so you might ask them some of the things like, what do you think the core tenets of, say, Hinduism are? What do you think the beliefs actually are about God? Why do you think Hinduism leads to God? Why do you think, and, and you start pressing those questions. Here's the problem. People are just making an irrational statement. And when you start pushing them with questions, they tend to get irritated and tend to get pretty upset. So no one to bail on the conversation. <laughs> yeah, my God give you wisdom on how to handle that um, as it happens. I would put the claim back on them. So you think, and maybe you could use cults as an example of this. You think that the Halley's Comet people who like killed themselves as Halley Comet was passing by several years back, they committed suicide. You think they, they had a successful path to find God. Like why? Then you can explain perhaps why Christianity presents a unique solution to the problem of sin. Sin separates us from God according to Christianity. If Christianity is a path to God, then that would seem to be accurate. Jesus provides the solution to this sin issue, and he brings us back into relationship with God because he dies for our sins, preserving the justice of God and giving us the mercy of God. So there's punishment of sin as well as forgiveness for us. Rising from the dead to demonstrate victory over death to show you that eternal life is a real thing available to you in Christ. Uh, if Christianity is true, then the other religions are false. If one of the other ones is true, then probably all the other ones are false. Yeah, it's just they're just kind of la-la land at that point. So James Sander Cedarloaf says, Cedarloaf? I don't know. As a disabled person, uh, some claim I'm missing out because I'm not looking forward to a new body. I'm content. Thoughts? Um, James, I, I don't really, I'm not, I wouldn't be worried about it. <laughs> I wouldn't be worried about it, man. 
I mean, compared to our new bodies, we're all disabled right now. Compared to the future bodies that we will have in heaven, we're all radically disabled and not just with physical ailments, although if we live long enough, we'll all be there. Um, but with the issue of the, you know, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, I would consider that the greatest disability of humankind is my spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. I'm quoting the words of Jesus here that I, I want to serve God, but I'm constantly dealing with sinful desires, sinful tendencies that arise, not just externally, but from within me. That's, that's the worst part about it, right? It comes from within me. My own desires for sin rise up in me. This is the greatest disability. I can't wait to be delivered from that. Um, you are content with whatever other disability you have. I think that's a very healthy thing. That's a very wonderful thing. I don't think you should feel like you have to be like, maybe you maybe you can't walk and you're like thinking, I can't wait to walk. And you're, maybe you're just thinking like, yeah, I'm just, I'm used to it. You know, I'm really, it's not that big of a deal to me. But I'll tell you, man, I can't wait to be free from sin. That's the thing that I'm very much looking for, looking forward to. And uh, the other stuff I wouldn't worry about too much. It sounds to me, James, like it's just a byproduct of you being genuinely content, even though you have a disability. And that seems like a very healthy mentality that is makes means you are very, you're, you're just being properly spiritually minded about whatever disability you've got. So I, I just encourage you that that seems like a healthy thing. Um, yeah, but there may be more things as you live on the longer you live that you are looking forward to in our eternal future. And that's also good as long as it doesn't produce discontent in a negative way for today. 13, Carissa Mirkovic says, why was Tamar in 2 Samuel considered a disgraced woman after being raped by her half-brother Ammon. Um, let's, maybe we can look at a little bit of this. Um, I'm gonna read a, a chunk of scripture here for you guys. Let's just read through it together so we can get the story loaded in our heads. It's been a while since I've read it. So um, now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister. That's his half-sister, by the way, who's, or no, wait, Abs no, Absalom's his actual full sister. Okay, I'll just read it through. Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, and after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. This is a half-brother loved her, because David had lots of ladies, which is a problem in and of itself. And Amnon was so tormented, what kind of love was it? Well, it wasn't good love, and this is a great example of how lust, the kind of love that is selfish, that is focused on my desires, not, not their benefit, the kind of love that's focused on my desires, not their benefit, turns into hate, at least potentially. And that's what happens here. So after a while, Amnon, David's son, loved her. Um, and Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Amnon, just to be clear here, this, this verse makes it clear he just wants to sleep with her. That's his major goal is the physical stuff. He's not looking to go beyond that. And she's a virgin and preserving that 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 um, purity is really important in their culture. It's not in our culture because our culture is retarded on this topic. Can I use that term? I think that's the proper term, appropriate term for how our culture thinks about this issue is there's mental slowness when it comes to the topic of proper uh, purity and sexuality and all that stuff. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonabab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonabab was a, cra a very crafty man. And he said to him, oh, son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonabab said to him, 
lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So you get the idea that in their culture, he's like not even going to be alone with her at any point, but he pretends to be sick and he's like, oh, I'm so sick. Dad, please send, send Tamar in. I just, that's all I want. Oh, <laughs> it's all I want. <laughs> okay. So he's a scum. Scumbag. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. So he's watching her, building up his desires as he watches her. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. He's royal. There's other people in the place. Everyone leaves. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. This was his chance and he wasn't going to lose it. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. This is a horrible thing that he's going to do to her. As for me, where could I carry my shame? This is the shame you were asking about. And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. It's so interesting that she act, either she's being clever and trying to reason with him, right? Like you're going you're gonna to regret this too. Or she even is concerned about him at that point, which is pretty gracious of her at that moment to be like, no, this is going to mess you up and me up. Now, therefore, please speak to the king for he will not withhold me from you. What does this mean? She means like, we could just get married. Like, I, I think the king would allow it. Now, would, would this be true? Would he really allow it? Um, he's not supposed to, right? Not according to the law. She might be trying to negotiate her way out of a bad situation, or she may be thinking that David would just bend the rules for the sake of these two. Um, it, it's, it, I, I don't know. Maybe she's just like anything, any, any excuse she can to get him to stop. But he would not listen to her and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. This is the verse that always sticks out to me in this passage. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. Have you felt that way towards somebody? You're obsessed with them and then you hated them. In some cases, this may have been because they were there to serve some purpose, some carnal purpose that you had. And after you got your purpose, all you had was shame. And rather than, this is what I call mismanaged guilt, rather than just going, I am the one who should be ashamed. I feel guilty. I've done such horrible things. Instead, it turns outward towards the person who you did it with, even if it wasn't their fault, and you hate them for it. This is him blaming her for his sin. It's a very human thing. It's a very wrong thing. So he says to her, get up, go. And she says, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other thing that you did to me. What is this? Why does she like, just get married to me is what she's saying. And you could read on in the passage. Um, she it ends up, he ends up dying. Okay, so just so you know the whole story um, for this. And um, killed by Absalom. And then that starts a whole big drama thing between Absalom and David. So her brother Absalom takes care of this. Um, at any rate, your question is the following. 
Why was she considered a disgraced woman after being raped by her half-brother, Amnon? Um, the shame that she has is that she, she no longer has that virginity that she can bring into a new wedding, into a new marriage. And so any man could be suspicious that a child that she has with him isn't, isn't really his. Um, any man who would perhaps marry her will now have a second thought about it. The shame isn't the shame of something she's done. It's the sad result of something that was done to her. You understand? It's not like God's ashamed of her. It's not shame in the sense of like God's going, you are guilty, you have done wrong, shame on you. It's none of the, nothing like that. It's culturally em embarrassing and creates a problem with her future of being able to marry somebody. This is going to be a problem because now there isn't a guarantee of my purity before marriage. In our culture, we tend to think of this as a very negative thing. This is a result of a culture that thought it was really important that people stay pure before marriage. That's a positive thing. Um, the result of her rape shouldn't, she shouldn't carry shame. She shouldn't feel ashamed like she did anything wrong. She didn't, but it's going to make her marriage more difficult. She prefers to just marry this brother of hers because it's going to make it look even worse. She was just used and cast aside. Um, that's her preference. Whether you understand it in your culture is a different issue and you probably don't. And that's okay. Just to recognize you don't understand it because you're not part of their culture. Um, it's not that it's not that it's somehow giving her, I guess this is the big issue that, that, that I would communicate to you. She didn't do something wrong. She's not disgraced because or shamed because she has any guilt on her, but rather he has stolen something from her that was very, very valuable. And that has made her feel shame. Does that make sense? Any woman who is saving herself, maybe put it this way, any woman who's saving herself for her future husband who has been raped would understand that something was stolen from her that was very, very valuable. She didn't do anything sinful. She didn't do anything wrong, but something was taken from her that was very, very valuable. And that's what she's feeling there. All right, we'll go to question number 14. Luis Dolvig says, a friend likes to substitute names in place of you in scripture. Is that biblical? Romans 15, 13, for example. I've heard of a Bible that does this where they like write, and I don't know if this is accurate, but I heard there was a Bible out there that you order and it like puts your name in the text of scripture where it would be like you or it would be talking to the, to the reader and it like adds your name in there. And I was just like, that seems like a couple layers of sketchy to me. Um, so may the God of hope fill, and I guess they would read this verse, this is Romans 15, 13, and they would think, may the God of hope fill Bob with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, Bob may abound in hope. Okay, let me give a pro and con on this. The pro is it might help you to remind yourself of how applicable this is. If I read this and I think to myself, may the God of hope fill Mike with all joy and peace. That is encouraging, okay? That, that does remind me of these things. That's the pro, and that's a positive effect. That's something I, I wouldn't want to take away from. Um, the con is that you may do that in verses where you're not supposed to. So you might recklessly add your name in places because it makes you feel good that it, your name doesn't exactly belong. So Romans 15, 13, I would say, is a prayer for the Romans who are reading the letter, but I do think that it is indeed a desire in God's heart towards all Christians. So it would be appropriate to think of it as being directed towards you as well. 
But in many places in scripture, the you isn't necessarily you. <laughs> and so, I mean, this could, could be obvious when you go to like, say, Re Revelation and you read the letters to the churches. And, um, and so let's, let's look at, say, how about Laodicea? Jesus says, I know your works. Well, like, let's take Bob again. Sorry, Bob. No offense, buddy. Just, I'm just using the name Bob. <laughs> I know Bob's works. Bob is neither hot nor cold. Would that Bob were either cold or hot. So because Bob is lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit Bob out of my mouth. <laughs> this is, this is the problem. Um, Obviously, whoever does this won't do it with this verse, but why not? Is it because they don't like the way it sounds, this is key, or is it because they realize the difference between verses that can easily be transferred to all Christians and verses that are meant for specific scenarios? And I'm going to guess that this will get harder and harder the more scripture you read, and that it might take you away from doing, and this is, this is the, the second con, it can take you away from doing a careful Bible study, like where you're reading the scripture, trying to understand what it says, and then apply it to your life. When I just stick my name in the word, I'm not understanding it first. I'm just applying it. An application of the Bible without understanding of it first is a bit reckless and can lead to some strange things. So that's why I would say there's a couple layers of sketchy of like a Bible that just kind of puts your name in there. Food for thought. All right, anonymous question comes in. Hi, Pastor Mike. Hope your day is going well. Well, it's going even better now. I'm enjoying my time with you guys. Uh, why does Jesus pray for us in heaven when he can directly ask God since he is seated at the right hand of God? Ah, the intercession of Christ. Good question. Um, let me take this to that passage in Hebrews. Um, Let me see. Just it'll take me a moment to find it, the exact verse. Just a second. Just a second. You can hear me typing. Um, so the original thinking I had on this when I was younger is that when Jesus interceded for me, he was praying for me in the way that like I might pray for a friend. Hey, so and so, can you pray for me? And as I studied these things a bit more in detail, and I started looking at like passages of scripture that talk about Jesus actually interceding for us. Here, first I'll go to Romans 8.34. I realized it was different than I expected. So let's look at the passage here. Who is, he, who is to condemn? Like who is the one who condemns us? Christ Jesus, which is nobody by the way, if you're, in, if you're Christ, right? Romans 8.1, like there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So here in verse 34, he goes, who is to condemn us? The answer is going to be nobody. And the reason Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What is this intercession that Jesus is doing? The intercession of Jesus, to my understanding, is not the intercession of one who is um, praying for specific needs I have. I'm not saying he doesn't care about your needs or isn't concerned about your needs. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is his intercession is a different kind. It's more like a priestly intercession. It's more like the intercession that keeps you from being condemned. That's the context. Wait, there we go. That's the context of this verse right here is that you and me are not being condemned because Jesus intercedes. That is, when, a, when an accusation comes against you about your sinfulness and your worth, your worthiness of being judged, 
Jesus stands between you and the accusation and says, I died for him, for her, and I rose again from the dead. And that accusation fails because Jesus has overcome it. So this intercession is not the kind of intercession that we get from, um, from prayer. It's the intercession we get from a priest. And, that, and that's why we go to Hebrews. So Hebrews 7.25 is the other verse I'll take us to. Here it says, consequently, Jesus, right, the he here is Jesus, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Again, this isn't him praying for specific needs. This is saving us. His intercession is about salvation. I can draw near to God through Jesus because he died in my place, rose again, and now it's in Christ that I'm holy and without blame and I stand before God in perfect love. He lives to be the one uh, mediator between God and man, bringing us together. That's Christ Jesus. So, so I would say the answer to your question from, from my perspective is that the Bible doesn't actually have Jesus praying for specific needs I have. I can pray to, the, uh, usually I pray, typical prayer, I think in structure, in scripture is I pray to the Father, but I'm praying in the name of the Son and you know because of the Son, he's interceding. So I'm able to access the Father through the Son and I'm praying in the Spirit. So I have, if you think of it like, maybe a little bit crudely, but I think it's helpful, the Holy Spirit's inside of me as I'm praying, hopefully guiding and directing me, right? Hopefully even inspiring, in, in a sense, my prayers. Um, and Jesus is the one I pray through because he gives me access to God the Father so that every prayer is going up through the glorious Son made acceptable to God. So in a sense, he's active in my prayers, but not interceding by praying for me, but interceding by creating the bridge between me and God at all times so that my prayers can even be a thing. This is why Jesus says, pray in my name. All right, let's go to the next question. Number 16, Elijah B says, what is the best way to get fellow believers to realize the importance of apologetics? I meet way too many Christians who are just like, I just read the Bible and that's all that's important. Well, I'll tell you a couple things. First, I don't think I need to get everyone else interested in apologetics. I kind of, I just don't feel that I need to. It's okay. Just take a deep breath. For those that, like you and me who love apologetics, just take a deep breath and go, it's okay if everybody's not as interested in this as I am. <laughs> um, it is important. Um, the gospel itself, just preaching the gospel is actually more important than apologetics. I think that I would be more focused on just wanting to get Christians doing that and just sharing the gospel of Christ and being grounded in it. But that doesn't mean we just completely give up. There's an importance to apologetics, so I do want to try to encourage more people to care about it. The most effective thing I've found is to present them with problems because until they have a problem, they don't care about a solution, right? Like recently we had like the squealing toilet and um, I'm not very handy, but, uh, but we had a squealing toilet and I was like fiddling with it and, and, and trying to do all this stuff. And finally I thought, I think I just need to replace the toilet valve. I have not done that before. I don't want to call a plumber for it. So I like Googled it and I'm here I am looking at tutorials on how to replace a toilet valve, which is remarkably easy, by the way. I, it was much, much more simple than most other repairs I've ever done. Um, real simple. But I just, you know, click, 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 replaced it, done. If you had hit me up like a month ago and were like, Mike, I want to teach you how to replace a toilet valve. <laughs> I don't care. Um, nah, I'm good, man. I don't need that. I just, you know, just me and my toilet are doing fine. Thanks. 
it's not until there's a problem that I care about the solution. And apologetics is often about presenting solutions to problems. When I found um, that I would try to present things like, here's why the Bible's true, here's why this and that, to different audiences, it would have less impact until I started presenting the arguments against the Bible first. So in that same presentation or in that same moment, I might present, and I would only present arguments I'm going to solve. I'm not going to cause problems for people and not fix them, right? But I would want to make them aware. Like, hey, you may not be aware of this, but there's a here's a quote from a from a even better, a video clip from some atheist skeptic who claims this about the Bible. And all of a sudden, the Christians in the room hear a squeaky toilet. Well, that's a problem. I mean, I guess that that is a problem. Like, they shouldn't say that, but I actually realize I don't really know the way to answer that. I'm not sure how to. And so now I care about the solution. Now I want the tutorial video on how to fix the problem. This is the thing with apologetics, I think, is if you're not already interested in apologetics, what gets you interested is you have a squeaky toilet to milk my analogy as much as I can. You have a squeaky toilet and you need to replace the valve. And so now you want to see the tutorial. You, you, you have a problem, a question you don't know the answer to, or you don't know how to articulate it, or you don't know how to convince that other person. And so now you care about the answer. So that's my encouragement. When you do go down that road, present people with the problem first, let them feel it. Don't, don't, I, I think it's bad to do it in some ways. Don't give them 50 problems and then walk away and be like, now they'll care about apologetics. You're like, no, you did not, you did not bless them. Present them with an issue that you can solve and help them with and do it in a humble way because if they sense arrogance in it, then they're going to turn you off anyhow. At least a lot of people will. Um, anyway, that's my thoughts on that. I hope it helps Elijah. Um, Jody Wainwright says in Matthew 19, verses 18 and 19, why doesn't Jesus tell the man to follow all 10 commandments instead of the six he listed when the man questioned him about having eternal life? That's an interesting question. Let's go to the scripture on that and read a little bit of what it says. I'm going to have to back up just to give us some context here for those who might not know it. Okay, so it says in Matthew 19, 16, Behold, a man came up to him, came up to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, and so the question is like, he's assuming there's a good thing I have to do in order that I can live forever. So he's assuming a works-based salvation. And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who's good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. So this is interesting. This tie, Both of these things tie in so beautifully. It's almost like poetry in my mind, what Jesus is doing. I'll give you the short answer here uh, before, rather than lots of detail, which I, I have more detail on this in my Mark series whenever I talked about the rich young man here. Um, okay, so... Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. Here, he's challenging the guy's very concept of goodness. His, the guy's concept of goodness is too low. He thinks he's going to earn heaven. There's a way to earn heaven, but it's, you're going to have to be so good that you're as good as God, the one who is good. Okay, Jesus is not denying his deity here. He's good. He's perfect. He's sinless. So he's going to do the thing. The guy says, how do I enter eternal life? He's going to do it for the guy so the guy can believe in Jesus and get saved. At any rate, he says then, if you would enter into life, keep the commandments. See, keeping the commandments is an option to enter into life, but it's an option like, um, like, uh, sailing the Atlantic in a paper, in a paper boat. Um, (laughs) 
like you like get, get a piece of paper and make a little boat now go sail the ocean with it like you're not going to do it just like you're not going to keep the commandments it's an option like if you can do it it'll get you across but no one's going to do it because no one's good enough so he said to him which ones now why did the guy say which ones he wants to lower the standard he doesn't want to be perfectly good the way god is he wants a list of specific things he has to do so he can have a lower standard so he can feel like he's good enough to get into heaven this is what i think most people do well i haven't killed anybody like i'm i'm, I'm a good neighbor i try to be a good parent I try to be a good spouse like i try to be a good person like i try to be goodish is what they're saying they want to know which ones so he says jesus says you shall not murder you shall not commit adultery you shall not steal you shall not bear false witness honor your your father and mother you shall love your neighbor as yourself Jesus lists all of these commandments that deal with human relations, not with relationship with God, like having no one before God, no idols, that sort of thing. These are all just human things, right? Um, and, but the last one he lists, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, seems more like a summary than it, as far as the Ten Commandments go, right? It's a summary. It's not just a quote of one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, maybe what he's summarizing here is the do not covet don't even covet what they have, which is an internal thing. Love is also an internal thing. Love your neighbors yourself. The young man said to him, oh, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? I don't think that's true, that he always loved his neighbor as himself. Um, I've never met a human who has, anyone who says they have, I, I doubt it. Um, we could talk about that sometime, you know, but I doubt that. But he goes, what do I lack? So the man has as Jesus started his statement, he's like, "Hey, you don't, you obviously don't understand what goodness is. There's only one who is good. That is God." So he gives him specific commands that should reveal that he's not good. But the guy's like, "Oh yeah, I've done all that. I've done all that." So then Jesus highlights a specific sin issue: if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. I mean, that would be a way of loving his neighbor. He's gonna, he's rich, right? Sell what you have, give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Um, he wasn't holy. He, he wasn't Jesus. In a sense, what Jesus counsels for this young man to do is what Jesus alone has done. Jesus didn't steal, covet, didn't do any of those sinful things. He loved his neighbor as himself. He demonstrated it by giving up the riches of heaven selling all he have, and he gave it to the poor so that we might be saved, right? Jesus did, the, he's the one who did the thing that this guy didn't do, and just as, as he is with you and me, he did the thing that I didn't do to save me. Now you asked why, okay, all that was kind of a teaching through the passage, but you asked the question, why is it he only listed six of the commandments? Well, I would say he actually did the last one wasn't really one of the commandments love your neighbors yourself it was more of a summary of the of the commandments towards man but he listed only relationships toward men maybe because jesus wanted to focus on that wanted to highlight that um and not because jesus wanted to focus on the relationship with god maybe because this man that's what he needed to realize his sin was to look at how he's treated his neighbor was to realize yeah he does have some issues and finally he he went away sorrowful and he's realizing I guess I, I guess there's at least something I'm realizing I've, I fail in, I fall short in. The guy really thought he was a good person through and through. He really thought he was. He thought he was going to earn his way to heaven. But those who think this are further from Christ because they haven't yet realized that the law is there to expose our sin and to point us to salvation in Christ, to faith in Christ. 
it's it's the doctor who walks in the room and gives you the bad news so that you'll care about the cure. Jesus is the cure, but if you think you're a good person all the way through, you, you don't think you need a cure. So you won't run to Jesus. Um, uh, I'll just add this in too for anybody who's curious. The last thing Jesus says there, Jesus says to his disciples, um, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? They're, they have a lot of temptations that are attached to them to this world. They don't all have to give up their riches, but there's an example of someone who picked their wealth over, over Christ. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they're greatly astonished. Who then can be saved? Right? Who can work hard enough to be saved then if, if they can't even do it? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible, right? Because Jesus is the one who will do the suffering and the giving and the, self, the self-sacrifice and love us all like neighbors as himself, putting himself on the cross for us so that we can be saved. You can't earn your way to heaven. With man, this is impossible, but God can provide a way and then you will find it through Christ. So sometimes people need to hear how hard it is to get into heaven on their own before they realize how much they need Jesus. I hope that helps you somewhat, Jody. Um, Mad Love Concepts says, do we know if the early church worshiped in a similar way to how we have corporate worship today? And the, the answer uh, to that is difficult. Um, it, I, I don't know for sure. There, there's like little... Let me just say this, like the, the lack of the sound equipment and the fact that they were meeting in like local, local, more, more smaller group meetings in many cases, um, implies that they would not have had such entirely stage focused content, but they did have speakers. There were specific speakers. Uh, it does seem that in their worship, there was more activity from the congregation than we have in a typical church service today where we have almost everything happening on the stage. Yeah, we have speakers, but we also just have like worship announcement speakers, like the only discussions happen on stage. And then a lot of people come and then leave without participation uh, other than maybe singing. But it seems like the early church was more open to a lot more interaction and dialogue uh, that went on during the service, but not interrupting hopefully the message part. So there's, there's, it'd be good if we have more of that, I imagine. Um, And some churches try to incorporate this more, you know, they do, and they're working at it. You know, pastors trying to ask questions and give opportunity for open prayer and things like that. Um, we're to, they did sing. They sang hymns. They sang songs. This was like a normal part of the church service, I think, as Scripture indicates when it's in Ephesians when it talks about us singing hymns and songs and making melody in our hearts to the Lord, that this is like a normal thing. But there was openness to more participation probably than what we typically have in our church services. Um did it have a liturgy like we often do, at least in evangelical churches, where it's like opening worship, announcements, um, maybe some more worship, and then like the message and then a closing song? We don't really know what the order of service was like. And I'm going to argue that maybe that's because we should have flexibility on these things and we shouldn't be dogmatic about it. And be like, yeah, look, just... The one criticism I'd have for in general is that we we probably should have more involvement, individual involvement in normal church services than we do. And I'm not even sure how to accomplish that because in our culture, we get a little weird about that. So it makes it harder. Um, but I wouldn't be dogmatic about it either. Just giving you my own personal preference there. Interesting thought, something worth studying more of, looking at you know scriptures that deal with it in detail. All right. 
Let's go to question 19. We're almost done here. And then again, next week, I will not have a live stream. That's going to be two weeks from now. It'll be the next Friday live stream. And that's the next stream I have planned at all. It's going to take me quite a while to prepare for the next women in ministry study on head coverings. Finally, you, you guys have to be patient with me, though. I got a lot of prep to do. Uh, that one guy has a question. It says, hey, Pastor Mike, I'm far from the Lord in this moment and not very genuine. What could I do to improve my relationship and be as honest as I can, be obedient and listen to his word? Well, that one guy here, we are towards the end of the stream. I, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm just short on time. So I, I hate to tackle the question like this so briefly, but I'm going to give you the counsel that I give myself knowing very little about your situation. Okay. I know very little about it. I don't know the reasons why you're feeling far from God. I don't know how much of that is um, wrong thinking where you're not really far, you know, you think you are, or right thinking where you're like, no, I'm really, I've been in rebellion in a lot of ways. And um, you feel like you're not genuine. Like, is that legitimate? Is that false? I don't, I don't know the answers to those questions, but I know this. God wants you close. His desire is to have you close. Like we, in the first question of today's video, I dealt with our purpose, right? You were made for relationship with God and loving relationship with others. This is your design. This is what you're made for. Jesus died while we were yet sinners. So I think that his attitude of grace extends to you now, that he intercedes for you now, as Hebrews says, that you might come boldly to that throne of grace, forgiveness, that you can obtain mercy in your time of need, which may be right now. So I'm going to encourage you to, I want to encourage you to get on your knees, like as soon as, this, as, soon as I'm done talking, or even before, if you feel like it, just stop the video. Get on your knees before the Lord and repent and pour out all the stuff that's going on, including, I don't care where your emotions are at, I want you to be open and honest with the Lord and just say, here's what I've been doing, here's where I've been wrong, here's what I want to do now, and I pray that you would fill me with your spirit, I pray that you would empower me to walk closer to you and be sincere, I feel like my even my genuineness, my sincerity is not there, Lord, I just confess that that's the case, and I pray that you would guide and direct me and help me. And then I want you to focus as you get up from that on, as you lay out the specific issues on actions of obedience, actions of obedience to Christ in your life. And just say, if I'm really honest with myself, what would be the most obvious things that I should do in my life starting today if I'm going to be serious about following the Lord? And then start doing those things. Do not neglect prayer. Do not neglect worship because I don't know about everybody else, but for me, I told you I'd give you the advice I give myself, a time of just picking up my guitar or maybe putting on worship music and just worshiping the Lord or going on a walk and praying while I walk. Those are powerful and life-impacting times for me. So I, that's my encouragement to you. Um, thank you so much for asking that one guy. Thank you so much for asking this question. You are in a place many have been and the Lord knows and his mercy is ready for you. So yeah, get on your knees before the Lord. Pour it all out to him with or without emotions. Emotions are emotions. Yeah, God bless you. Number 20, Brittany Howard has a question. Last one for today. What do you think of popular statements such as you are worthy and you are enough? To me, neither sound biblical. We are unworthy and not enough. And neither do we have to be because Jesus is. I mean, it's so funny when you when you say, what do you think about statements like, you are worthy, you are enough. And I think, oh yeah, God is worthy. God is enough. But they're not talking about God. <laughs> um, 
I agree with you. I'm not, I'm not worthy in and of myself. And that's, I think what people mean when they say you're worthy, what they, what they often mean is you are in and of yourself. You are already worthy. You are not made worthy by Christ. Then it's okay. If you want to say, look, you are worthy in Christ, you are made worthy, but you are not inherently worthy as far as worthy of what? Just fill in the blank. Everything, everything you can imagine, everything you want, everything that you hope comes your way, you're worthy of that. Like that's irrational and it creates a narcissistic perspective on life, an entitled perspective on life. A great way to create a mass of very unthankful, ungrateful people is to tell them that they are just worthy of everything. But if they're worthy only in Christ, if their worthiness to stand before God and his grace, to enter into eternal life, to have forgiveness is all just because of Jesus, then it turns them into thankful and grateful people, but also people who aren't so anxious about their own inadequacies. But just telling people, you're enough, you're enough, you're enough, you're enough. It's like not really true. And so I'm covering up my inadequacies and it creates this false pride. And that's I connected to this in my opinion is, the, is some of the pride movements that we have. We connect everything to pride. This pride, that pride, that pride, that pride. And a lot of it's pride. It's, it's like this sense of like, I'm just going to feel good about myself. Man, I, I just, people are lucky to be in my presence. People should appreciate my presence because I'm important and I'm worthy. This makes me feel good, but it also starts to eat out the internal character that I have. And it slowly will eat its way out to the surface and turn into some weird behaviors. So I'm going to say, you are worthy doesn't seem like a biblical phrase in the way moderns often use it to talk about normal people. You're worthy. Like, I'm unworthy. You know, like when Isaiah stood before the Lord and he saw God, he said, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted upright. And, and he says, well, let me just take you there. What did Isaiah say when he saw God? Isaiah 6? He, he wasn't like, I am worthy. Look at me here before God and I'm so worthy. After he saw God, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The more clearly I see God, the more clearly I see my sin issues too. Because when I see holiness, I recognize unholiness. It's like when I, when I see something that's incredibly clean, you know, for me, like I'm always spilling things all over myself, right? I, I like just, just my life, right? Like I'm always spilling stuff. When I walk over to something that is incredibly clean, I'm more aware of my own uncleanness as I stand there awkwardly. And this is the nature of, of when I perceive the glory of God and the goodness of God and the righteousness of God. So one of the issues here is the only way to, to say that I'm worthy in and of myself, that I'm enough in and of myself, is to lower my estimation of what's worthy way below God and what's enough way below God to increase my sense of self satisfaction, self empowerment, maybe. Now I'm not asking that Christians, and I don't think the Bible is asking that Christians feel like they're incapable of doing anything. Capacities and abilities are not worthiness and enoughness in the sense of making you feel satisfied as a person. You have capacities and abilities and you should seek to maximize those and labor hard and achieve great things for the Lord and for others. So that's good, but I'm just not worthy by myself. So I think that this, this move, you're worthy, you're enough, it especially thrives in women's ministries, it seems, for some reason. 
Um, and I remember, you know, we would send students off to like a women's conference type thing or girls conference and they'd come back. And I mean, every time the counselors would tell me, man, it's just so much self-affirmation stuff. It's like not discipleship like they need. And there's a degree of value in this and understanding that you're, you stand in good. To me, it's not about me being worthy, right? You stand in God's grace. You stand in his forgiveness. You are, you're not enough, right? Jesus is enough to, f- to fill you and to empower you and to help you um, and all those things. But just over and over again in women's ministries, it's, and I'm not the only one who's noticed this. I I think it seems like, and I'll, those who are involved in women's ministry, um, think about this in case it's accurate. If you're in a culture in women's ministry of self-affirmation as being sort of the one constant rule of all the ministry that happens there, this might be hindering instead of helping the spiritual growth of the women who you're supposed to be ministering to. Uh, men's ministries don't typically do this. I usually go to men's ministries and it's often about, all right, man, you need to step up. You guys need to step up. It's like, it's often about like calling them towards greater godliness and, 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 and all that. Sometimes it dips into just like manliness for the sake of manliness. And I've heard whole talks about what kind of pants you wear, at least rarely. Okay, I've heard this before. Um, and I think that that's uh, missing the point where we, we, we associate manliness with the wrong, the wrong things. But, uh, but so often women's ministry, man, it just seems the case. So Brittany, maybe you're coming from that perspective, you know, popular statements like you're worthy, you're enough. I agree. It doesn't seem soundly biblical. Um, we're unworthy and we're not enough. You're hundred percent right. And we don't have to be because of Jesus and praise God. Amen. That creates humble, grateful, thankful people, which is where we ought to be. But some people are creating proud, arrogant, self-assured people in the name of discipleship. And that's, I guess, we're all in today. <laughs> let's, uh, let's pray. Um, Lord, we thank you for the worth that you impart to us in Christ. There's this amazing value in us being made in your image. And yet there's this damage that we've done in our sins and in our rebellion. And when we stand before you or even think about you or even get to know you better, we realize so much how unworthy we are in our actual character and in our behavior and in our lives. But you don't leave us there, Lord. You rescue us in Christ. Jesus, while we were yet sinners, he died for us, the ungodly, that he might bring us to God, that we could be without blame before you in love, spotless and holy. But it's all your holiness. It's the spotlessness you've provided and nothing we've done. And so we're just so grateful and thankful, God. We bless your holy, holy name. We praise you. And we ask that you'd help us to be those who find the liberty and the freedom there is in humility that trusts you to be our enoughness. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for joining. I will see you in two weeks, I guess. And uh, I know no matter what I do, I'm still going to get comments from people on like random places and messages like, are you okay, Mike? You didn't do a stream on Friday. If you ever see me not doing a stream, I'm probably fine. There's just some reason why I'm busy that day. That is all. Thank you very much. Pray for me as I prepare for the women in ministry head coverings topic, which is going to take me deep in prep for a lot of time. So thanks for your patience.